If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Calling all History Extra podcast listeners, we want to hear from you. We're currently conducting some research about our podcast, so please enter our survey for your chance to win a £100 Waterstones gift card. It shouldn't take any longer than 10 minutes, and as a thank you for taking part, UK residents who complete the survey will be given the opportunity to enter our prize draw for the chance to win one of two £100 e-gift cards to spend at Waterstones. The survey will be available to complete until 11.59pm on Sunday the 4th of October 2020. You can find the link in our episode description. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we have another of our recorded lectures for you from our history events in autumn 2019. You're about to hear from Dr Sophie Ambler talking about her book The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary. While we're not currently holding live events, we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. Now, here's Sophie Ambler on the remarkable life of a 13th century nobleman who challenged Henry III. I would like to share with you um, this morning um, a few glimpses of the life of Simon de Montfort, uh, known as England's first revolutionary. Um, If Simon is uh, known today, he's known best perhaps as the the author of uh, Parliamentary Democracy, Um, because he held um, in 1265 the first parliament to which men from the towns as well as knights from the shires were called. And that's the first time we know for certain that happened. Um, And that is where, um, you know, the the assembly on which Simon's reputation is founded. I don't know if anybody noticed or or remembers uh, 2015, when as well as the big Magna Carta anniversary, Um, there was um, something called Democracy Day um, on the anniversary of the opening of Simon's Parliament in 1265, um, hosted by the BBC, which was essentially about saying, this is where democracy democracy began, and from here it spread out across the world and and everything like that. Um, And that is a a very important part of um, Simon's story, but it's not the only part. And what I'd like to share with you, particularly this morning, um, is the other side. And that is the world of holy war, the world of crusading into which Simon was born and which played an integral part in his life and his career um, throughout throughout his life and was absolutely integral to the political movement that um, he led between 1258 and 1265, um, by which he overturned royal power. And in order to um, understand um, where that all started, we have to go um, back to his childhood and upbringing. Uh, Simon was born in the family lands just outside of Paris in about 1208. And when he was a year old, his father was elected leader 
of the Albigensian Crusade, um, the holy war sanctioned by the church against the so-called Cathars in Languedoc. Um, and when um, his father was elected leader of this movement, uh, Simon's mother brought him down south to Languedoc to join this expedition. Um, and so this is where Simon spent the first 10 years or so of his life growing up in a war zone, growing up in crusade. And this was very much a Montfort family enterprise. Simon's father, Simon de Montfort the Elder, um, his mother, Alice de Montmorency, all of his brothers um, were leading this expedition as a family effort. And as soon as Simon's brothers were old enough, um, perhaps 14, 15, they were knighted and sent into battle. Um, the family very much dedicated itself um, to this enterprise. And this was a war that was, um, in the context of the time, particularly um, barbaric. The normal wars that were fought um, in Europe between Christians uh, were conducted according to the, the rules of um, uh, chivalry, um, we can call it, whereby knights didn't seek to kill knights on the field of battle. They sought to take them captive for ransom. Not so in the Albigensian Crusade, where we see um, killings of nobles on both sides. We see torture, um, and we see a, a particularly brutal um, type of warfare. And this was um, the culture in which um, young Simon grew up as a child. Now, when Simon was about 10... Um, his father was killed during this expedition. He was killed in 1218 at the Siege of Toulouse. Um, this is a fragment from his uh, tomb in uh, the Basilica of Saint-Nazaire in Carcassonne. Out of interest, has anyone been to Carcassonne and the Basilica there and seen this fragment? One or two? Actually, quite a few people. That's... that's um, Quite a few record. Has anybody been to the Basilica and not seen this tomb fragment? <laughs> it's probably a sort of a similar number because it's not highlighted in any way at all. It's sort of in this sort of dark corner with no signage because, of course, the name Simon de Montfort in Languedoc is not particularly popular um, for, for obvious reasons. Um, this is the tomb, this is a fragment of the tomb that marked. Simon the Elder's first burial place, he was removed to the family lands a few years later. And with the eye of faith, you can just about see in the top corner here um, an angel carrying away um, a, a body to heaven, which um, some, some have suggested is the body of, of Simon the Elder um, after his death at the Siege of Toulouse. Um, so Simon, he would have attended um, the burial of his father and over the course of the next few years, he had to um, attend the burials of many other members of his family. His uncle um, was killed during the course of the same expedition a few years later. One of his brothers, uh, the middle brother Guy de Montfort, was killed during the Albigensian Crusade as well. Um, so the family suffered a pretty serious rate of attrition, these men being killed in combat in this particularly brutal war. About three years after his um, father died at the Siege of Toulouse. His mother also died. We don't know exactly um, how. And Simon was um, brought up um, in the years that followed here, probably, um, at the monastery of Les Vaux de Cernay, just outside the family lands um, near Paris. Um, 
this is what remains of the monastery today. You can see uh, the remains of, of, of the abbey here. It's um, a great Cistercian um, monastery um, supported by the Montfort family. The abbot of um, the house was the best friend of Simon the Elder. Um, and this is where um, our Simon returned when he was um, a young boy to be brought up by the Cistercians there. And this is particularly significant um, for the shaping of Simon de Montfort's career, and he would go on to lead this illustrious um, career in England. Because by um, a curious, um, say it's not a coincidence as such, but um, the chronicle of the Albigensian Crusade, the historical account that most historians use today to um, excavate the events of the Albigensian Crusade, that was written by the monks of this monastery, by one monk in, in particular, Peter of Levaux de Cernay. It was written here as a history of the great deeds of Simon de Montfort the Elder to tell the world what a brilliant and inspiring crusade leader he had been. And that's particularly significant in our story because when young Simon was growing up and being brought up and taught his letters um, in this monastery, um, this chronicle was what the monks were using to educate him. So young Simon would have um, grown up listening to stories of his father's great deeds during the Albigensian Crusade. This was the model, the model that was provided for him, um, the model of leadership, the model of um, being a husband, a father, a knight, a Christian. And this was the model that Simon was exhorted to live up to. And this was how he was educated. And what we see during the course of Simon's career, and particularly when he came to lead that political movement in the 1250s and 1260s in England, is that he was appealing to the memory of his father and the model of leadership that he had been taught through the stories of his father by the monks of Les Baux de Cernay through this chronicle. We can see exact parallels in the way that he carved his reputation. And this is important, I think, because it reminds us just how integral the ideas of holy war were to knights of this time. I mean, we think of Simon the Elder today as, as some sort of monster um, for the things that he did during the Albigensian Crusade. What we have to remember is that for knights at the time, he was a hero as a great crusade leader. And for his son in particular, he was the hero of heroes and the model of um, knighthood and leadership. And so we cannot divorce this, um, the political movement that sprung up in England under Simon the Younger's leadership from um, the culture of holy war. How then did Simon... Um, come to England. Um, he came uh, when he turned of age, about the age of 21, um, to stake his claim to family lands um, in Leicester. The family um, had a very strong claim to the earldom of Leicester that Simon the Elder um, had through the, um, his mother's line. And Simon's father had never been allowed to take up this inheritance of the earldom of Leicester because of the wars between England and France in the early 13th century. But now uh, Simon resigned 
his claims to his ancestral lands in France and came over to England to meet King Henry III of England and stake his claim um, to the Earldom of Leicester. I should say that this isn't a portrait of Simon de Montfort himself. We have no portraiture from that time um, that gives us an indication exactly um, how he looked, but this is um, a Westminster manuscript from the very early 1200s that gives you a good impression of how a knight of Simon's time um, would have um, would have looked, how he would have dressed. Um, you can see his mail, his tabard, his heraldry, and he's performing the act of homage to his king by proffering his hands um, as if in a gesture of prayer. And this, of course, is um, what Simon did for King Henry III. Um, he performed the act of homage when Henry granted him the Leicester lands and made him earl. And that connected a bond, um, that made a bond of fealty between the king um, and his man. Um, what we can trace of Simon's career in those early years um, tells us that he very quickly um, made his way in the court, he made friends, he ingratiated himself with the king. And in particular, um, what we can see by the later 1230s um, is Simon carving out a niche for himself in the very top echelons of society. And in particular, um, we can see um, the pivotal point um, in Simon's career, which was when he fell in love. Isn't that lovely? Yes, he fell in love. Um, and we know this because the most cynical chronicler of the time, Matthew Parra, sees a sort of bitter monk writing in St. Albans Abbey, um, puts aside all of his cynicism and says, he, Simon married the woman out of um, freely, freely given love so without looking for um, financial reward. Having said that, the woman in question was the king's sister. Um, <laughs> so very convenient to fall in love with the right woman, I think. Um, and this was a little bit of a scandalous marriage at the time, um, partly um, because Simon um, was... Um, uh, a significant baron, but he wasn't one of the greatest men of Europe. He had a famous name, um, but he was still young. He hadn't proven himself. He didn't have a great deal of land to his name. And the king's sister really should have been married to someone uh, with a little bit more clout. But it was also um, scandalous because the king allowed the marriage to take place without asking for the counsel or consent of the great men of the land, because this was, um, because Eleanor, Eleanor um, Plantagenet, because she was such a prize, her marriage should have been decided in council as a major matter of state. Um, but instead, the king gave the bride away in his private chapel um, without telling anyone. And we get a hint of, of the story that lay behind that uh, just a couple of years later when a storming row broke out between King Henry and Simon. And King Henry was said to say to Simon, I regret more than anything allowing you to marry my sister. I only did it because you seduced her before the marriage and I had to let it go ahead. Now, we don't know exactly what happened here. Um, obviously, our, our sources don't tell us 
um, anything more. Um, but what we can say is that Eleanor um, had actually given up a vow of chastity to marry Simon. She had been married at a very young age to um, an earl. Um, she'd been widowed at 16. And in order probably to remove herself from the marriage market, to stop herself being made into a, a, a pawn in this sort of political game, she'd sworn a vow of chastity. When Simon de Montfort came along, the vow of chastity went out the window, um, which gives you a bit of an impression of him and of her, I think. Um, so Simon um, married Eleanor. He, um, they, they started a family. Um, but very soon, um, Simon was called to the next phase in his career, which was um, following in the footsteps for the first time of his father and his mother and his brothers in um, going to uh, war, going to crusade. And Simon um, took part in an expedition um, that occurred between 1239-1241 called the Baron's Crusade. Um, it's one of the, the um, little-known crusades of this period, um, in part because it, it went pretty disastrously wrong. Um, I should say most crusades after the First Crusade went pretty badly wrong. Um, this one was no exception. Um, Simon was supposed to set off in 1213. He had planned to go with his elder brother, Amory. Um, Amory had survived the Albigensian Crusade, one of the few Montfort to survive. Um, and he had left France in 1239 as one of the leaders of this expedition. Simon was delayed in England. He couldn't depart with his elder brother. And by the time that Simon got to the Holy Land, his brother had already been involved in a major battle, the Battle of Gaza, um, in the autumn of 1239. And his brother had actually been taken captive by the Sultan of Egypt and marched off to captivity in Cairo. Um, this is um, an illustration by Matthew Paris, um, the, the, the bitter monk of St. Albans, Matthew Paris. And you can see his um, sort of grisly... Um, account of the Battle of Gaza here, and Amory de Montfort, Simon's brother, is probably one of these men being led off um, to captivity in Babylon, which is um, Cairo. So when Simon arrived, um, this was the state of affairs. And our sources here are a little bit frustrating. Um, we don't know exactly what Simon got up to um, when he arrived in the Holy Land. Um, we don't know if he took part in um, a battle himself or any other kind of skirmish or any other kind of event, um, because our sources just run dry here. Um, but we know that he must somehow have impressed the other crusaders and the people of the Holy Land, because our next fragment of evidence comes in 1241, um, so the next year. Um, this is a document that survives at the British Library. And it's actually a request from the barons of the kingdom of Jerusalem that Simon de Montfort be made their regent. Their king was underage. They needed somebody to govern the kingdom. And who did they turn to um, but Simon de Montfort? And you can see um, sort of the, the request um, coming in here. The Count of Leicester, Simon de Montfort, Count of Leicester, um, Earl of Leicester is the man for the job as they see it. 
We don't know if he did something on the battlefield or whether he was just somehow personally um, inspiring. Um, but it does tell us that even by this stage in his career, um, Simon's only in his early 30s at this point, um, he had that ability to command the respect of his peers. And that was um, a rare um, thing and a notable part um, of his reputation. Because what's particularly striking is that this request for Simon to be made regent of the Kingdom of Jerusalem was the first of three requests that were made during his career for him to govern a kingdom. The first, this one in 1241. The second came in the early 1250s when the barons of the Kingdom of France wanted him to govern their kingdom when their king was off on crusade. And the third came in 1263, when the barons of the Kingdom of England asked him to become leader of this new political movement um, that would bring reform to the kingdom. So this very much um, set him apart um, from other men at the time, this ability um, uh, to lead and the ability to command um, the respect of those around him. This set him in contrast, um, really, to his king, Henry III. Um, this is King Henry in effigy at Westminster Abbey. It was Henry III, of course, um, who rebuilt Westminster Abbey um, as a, um, uh, in, in service to his great patron, St. Edward the Confessor. King Henry was, in many ways, um, a good king and a nice man, um, the son of King John, um, and entirely different from his father. Um, King John, um, I should say at this point, um, the more research we do on King John, and we did a lot of research leading up to the Magna Carta anniversary, the more research we do, the more we realise just how rotten John actually was. <laughs> If anybody ever tries to tell you he's misunderstood and is actually okay, no, he really was not. He really was not. Um, Henry III, in contrast, um, knew the history of his father, wanted to be a very different man and was a very different man. Um, he was a faithful husband, unlike King John, uh, a very loving and devoted father, and that comes across very clearly in the record evidence. Um, a pious Christian, as I said, he rebuilt um, Westminster Abbey. The one thing with Henry is that um, the word that was used to describe him time and again was simplex. Now, simplex can just mean sort of straightforward um, and direct, but it can also just mean a little bit simple, uh, a little bit gullible and easily led. Um, and the, the criticism that was made of Henry was that um, he was led into um, disastrous policies by advisors who were serving their own interests and leading him astray. And this put him uh, really in contrast to Simon, who, as we've seen, um, was somehow a, a winning or inspiring personality. Um, and that really led Henry and Simon into conflict throughout um, their uh, relationship over the course of several decades. And what we really see um, in, this, um, in this particular dynamic 
is slightly the darker side of Simon's character. And this is a record that survives um, in the archives uh, in Paris, in the Montfort family archives. And it describes an argument um, that took place between um, King Henry III and Simon in 1242. Now, this document was created years later in the early 1260s, and it was looking back um, to this incident decades previously, and it's actually Henry III's complaint, his record of this argument. And it tells us quite a lot about um, the actual incident, but also um, the impact it had on Henry. It describes this argument that took place in 1242 uh, in France, uh, at a place called Sant, after um, a battle, a battle that had gone very badly for King Henry III. Uh, he'd been attempting to win back the territory um, in France that his father, King John, had lost. He'd led an expedition to France. Um, he'd been abandoned by key allies uh, just before the battle and had been forced um, to flee uh, in this pell-mell retreat, chased by King Louis of France and his army. And King Henry came very close to being captured by the King of France, but for Simon de Montfort and one or two other earls who put themselves in the rear guard and fought uh, very hard to cover their king's retreat. And after um, the English uh, made it to safety, um, Simon turned around to King Henry and said this, according to this record. He said, you ought to be taken and locked up like Charles the Simple. There are houses with iron bars at Windsor that would be good for keeping you securely inside. Um, remember, we have this record that was created 20 years later by King Henry. So that tells you the kind of impact those words had on him. Um, Charles the Simple being the Carolingian king um, who was locked up by his own men in very similar circumstances. Um, again, that word simple, simplex, comes out. Um, so imagine saying this to a king. Imagine saying this um, to King John or Rich the Lionheart or Henry II. Um, you would just never get away with it. I mean, what would happen? Um, but this is exactly what Simon says to Henry III, and he completely gets away with it. And Henry uh, remembers it um, many years later. So this was the ability of Simon, or the sort of the willingness to say exactly what was on his mind, regardless of who he was speaking to, and to humiliate, to shame, um, regardless of status. And this is what he did to Henry III time and again. Now, that's not to say that that was the only difficulty in the kingdom, this um, uh, you know, personality clash between Simon and his king. Um, there were other difficulties too. Um, there were complaints um, by various of the barons of England that um, Henry III uh, was not governing um, according to um, the spirit of Magna Carta. There were complaints that he was... Um, requesting too much taxation, that he, um, he also had a scheme um, in the 1250s that um, he would lead an army to the kingdom of Sicily um, in order to conquer that kingdom on behalf of his younger son. Um, and that was, a, um, uh, that was sort of Henry's dream of setting up the Plantagenet Empire um, in Italy. 
Um, it didn't go down very well with his men, not least because he hadn't asked their permission before he agreed to it, um, but also because he uh, paid or he agreed to pay the Pope £100,000 just for licence to go and conquer the Kingdom of Sicily, and that's more than three times the annual royal income. Um, so all of these complaints were, were boiling up um, in the 1250s um, against Henry's rule. But it still doesn't quite explain what happened in 1258. Um, this was the moment when Simon de Montfort and other of the earls and barons seized power um, from King Henry III and set up a council um, to govern in his name. Um, and this is what happened at this, um, this parliament in Westminster Hall, um, in 1258. This was the first time that anything quite like this had been done before. Um, the removal of power from a king, the replacement of royal power by a council of nobles who would govern with the help of parliament, and the other particularly radical demand that they made was that parliament would be held three times a year from this point on not just when the king wanted it to request taxation, but three times a year, come what may. So this was the regime that Simon um, and his um, comrades set up in 1258. And over the course um, of the next two or three years, they set about um, putting in place a whole series of reforms um, that were aimed at rooting out corruption amongst Henry's men, um, that were aimed at improving access to justice, um, for the poor, um, and also holding the barons of England to account in the same way that they were holding the king to account, a sort of a new style of government, and um, it was extremely popular across the kingdom. Things came to a head, though, um, in 1263, 1264. Um, 1263 was when, um, as we've seen, um, or as, as I mentioned, um, Simon was invited by the barons to become outright leader um, of the reform movement to um, champion um, the reforming measures that were known as the Provisions of Oxford. And he led a campaign across England in 1263 um, to, to impose the provisions um, by force. And things came to a head in the spring of 1264 um, here at Lewis in Sussex. Now, as far as we know, um, the Battle of Lewis was Simon de Montfort's first battle. He had, of course, fought many sieges, skirmishes, and so on, but we don't have a record of a battle that he took part in before this. And that really makes his victory at Lewis um, all the more remarkable, um, because he showed here um, quite incredible feats of generalship. He marched his men through the night, um, to crest the Sussex Downs um, on the morning of um, 14th of May 1264, um, so that Henry III and his um, son and, and other members of the royal family with their army staying down here in um, the castle at Lewis, when they woke up that morning, they saw Simon's men arrayed on the hills above them, offering battle. So um, the victory that, that, that Simon won here was seen as so spectacular that it was somehow miraculous. Um, there were reports after um, the battle that St. Thomas Becket and St. George had been sighted 
on the Sussex Downs, they're championing the Montfortian army. Um, St. George being the patron saint of crusaders in this period before he became patron saint of England. And this was all helped by the fact that before the battle, um, Simon had made his men into crusaders. They'd all um, taken the cross, sworn an oath um, to make this into a holy war, and they'd all um, laid down on the earth before the battle and stretched out their arms to form a cross and um, been told by um, the Bishop of Worcester, who was one of Simon's good friends, um, that um, anybody who died in this um, battle would um, receive the crown of martyrdom and go straight to heaven. So this was Simon transforming um, his cause into a crusade. And what we really see in the glory days of the, the Montfortian regime set up in the wake of the Battle of Lewis is Simon appealing to the memory of his father. In the, um, the propaganda that went out from the centre um, in the months following the battle, he very much sets himself up um, as a model of crusading, um, very much um, in his father's um, image. This enabled him, having set up this new regime, setting up a council to govern with the help of parliament, um, this enabled him to um, call this assembly that is remembered today as the first House of Commons um, that took place between January and March 1265 in Westminster Hall. Um, this is um, a particularly uh, important assembly um, because not only knights from the shires attended, and they'd been attending um, Parliament in one form or another for, for much longer, um, many years before this, but because men from the towns were also summoned, and that's the first time we know this to have occurred. And what happened in this Parliament, um, Simon and uh, his comrades took the opportunity to parade King Henry III and young Edward, future Edward I, in front of their people um, in the sort of abject display of um, uh, kingship, kingship cut off from government. You know, they were sort of made to stand there in Westminster Hall in silence whilst the Montfortian regime um, announced all of the reforming measures. And in particular, we have a record of this parliament that was created in London uh, by one of the townsmen who actually attended um, in 1265, a man named Arnold Fitzledmar, um, and he wrote this chronicle um, in his own hand. And he describes the course of this parliament, um, and in particular, um, he notes at the bottom um, that at the, at the climax of this parliament, um, up on the, the dais in Westminster Hall, a group of nine bishops um, were present in their vestments holding lighted candles and pronounced a sentence of excommunication um, in support of the reforming provisions and also uh, to enforce Magna Carta, which had also been um, proclaimed at this assembly. So this was a, a dramatic ritual moment at the climax of this parliament that told everybody this regime might be radical, it might be... Um, setting aside everything you've previously known about kingship and government, but we cherish Magna Carta, 
we value those principles and those are the principles upon which we shall govern. So it was a, a spectacular um, feat of um, PR and spin um, that, that wrapped up this parliament. At the same time, um, during the course of this parliament, uh, Simon was actually sowing the seeds of his own downfall. Because having achieved this uh, great power um, and having set up this new regime, he used his um, power to um, actually seize a great deal of land from young Edward, the future Edward I. Um, it was set up as a sort of exchange of land, and it wasn't really an exchange. He just basically stole Edward's lands and gave them to his sons. And there were various arguments that he might have made um, to justify what he was doing. Um, but at the same time, um, you can't really say that you are, um, you are championing Magna Carta at the same time as stealing all the land of the heir to the throne uh, without uh, justice or judgment. And this set, um, although you know, many people uh, allowed him to essentially get away with this, um, it set against him one or two key characters, um, one of them being the Earl of Gloucester, um, who stormed off from the Parliament um, in, in anger at what Simon had done. The other um, being the Earl of Gloucester's younger brother, Thomas, um, who was left in the Montfortian camp um, as a sort of double agent um, in order to set about um, the process by which Simon would be brought down. And crucially here, Thomas, uh, young Thomas de Clare, um, was the jailer of Edward in Hereford Castle. He was the man in charge of keeping Edward locked up. Of course, what did he do in the spring of 1265? He conspired with his brother um, to release Edward from captivity um, so that Edward could um, make, a, make a bid for freedom, um, gallop off on his horse in dramatic style, um, and raise an army with the Earl of Gloucester to come against Simon. And this is exactly what he did. Um, Edward and Gloucester managed to trap Simon in Hereford, behind the Severn, um, and um, things were looking very bleak for the Montfortians. Um, until Simon was able to um, make a bid to um, lead his men out of Hereford in the hope of um, joining forces with his sons at Kenilworth Castle um, or perhaps heading back to London where he could raise more men. And so he made a desperate march um, out of Hereford over the course of a day and a night at the beginning of August 1265. Um, this is... Um, a couple of years ago, I thought it would be a good idea to uh, follow in Simon's footsteps and actually walk from Hereford to Evesham um, to see what it was like in, in marching that distance in, in effectively two days. It's about 40 miles. So it was a very long way. Um, and, and, uh, but, you know, it gave, gave me an impression of what it was like uh, leaving Hereford and going through Kempsey, just south of Worcester, through Pershaw, that's the last remaining um, buildings of Persia Abbey, um, to Evesham in Worcestershire. And this is where um, Simon set up camp on the morning of the 4th of August, arriving in the very early hours of the morning. He set up camp in the Abbey precincts. Um, and to just give you an idea of what we're talking about, this is 
Um, this is the, the Avon. Um, the town is sort of embedded in the loop of the Avon here. Simon came in here over the bridge, set up camp um, in Evesham Abbey. And this is where a remarkable account um, takes over to tell us what happened on the morning of the 4th of August. It's actually um, an eyewitness account written by one of the Abbey monks who was there in the precinct with Simon on the morning of the 4th of August. Um, and it tells us um, about the last hours of Simon de Montfort. And it describes how um, Simon and his army resting Nevesham Abbey, exhausted after this 40-mile uh, day and night march, were given the news that Edward had arrived with his army, with Gloucester, just to the north of the town up here. And at this point, Simon had to decide what to do. And the, the account tells us that he said to his men, um, you have an escape route over the bridge, over the Avon. You should take it, you should flee, you should save yourselves. At which point his men turned around and said, no, 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 of course we won't. And Hugh de Spencer, one of his oldest friends, said, no, my lord, no, let it be. Today we shall drink from one cup, just as we have done long since. And they made the decision to march up through Evesham town to engage Edward in battle, knowing that it would be very likely that they would be defeated because they were outnumbered, they were fighting uphill, um, and also knowing that Edward was coming after them. He had already declared the year before that he would give no quarter in battle to the Montfortians. And on the morning of the battle, as we now know, from this eyewitness account, Edward had actually selected 12 men, a 12-man death squad, who were charged with hunting down Simon on the battlefield, and they would kill him, come what may. And at this point, I think we have to turn again um, to the ideas that, and the values, the beliefs that motivated Simon, and in particular to his crusading ancestry. When I was um, researching the book, going through the Montfort family tree, I found it just so striking um, how many of the Montfort men had been killed in battle on crusade. Of course, there's Simon the Elder, killed in 1218 at Toulouse, um, Uncle, Uncle Guy, who was killed during the course of the same expedition. Uh, the middle brother, another Guy, killed during the Albigensian Crusade. Here's our Simon and a couple of younger um, siblings. And Amory, who we met earlier, um, being taken captive at the Battle of Gaza, had actually died um, on the way home. And all of these men were buried in the Montfort family mausoleum, um, in the Montfort um, family lands just outside Paris. And this really was, I think, um, the final uh, call to Simon de Montfort to follow in the footsteps of his father and his family. If you're a, if you're a Montfort man, what do you do? You go on crusade, you lead the expedition. You can't just be anybody in the expedition, you lead it. Um, and you are prepared to give up your life um, in battle, in, in martyrdom, as it was seen at the time. And I think this is um, the call that Simon followed. Um, so this is what happened. He, he marched up, engaged Edward in the top of the town. Um, it was over pretty quickly, as far as we can see. 
Um, Simon was cut down on the battlefield up here, along with many of his knights and um, other barons. And the rest of the, the troops fled down uh, through the town. They sought refuge in the Abbey Church here. And we know that uh, because the, the monk who was writing this account of the Battle of Evesham, um, having um, exited the town very sharply when the battle commenced, um, for, for obvious reasons, uh, when they returned to the Abbey after the battle, um, it was in the Abbey Church and particularly around the high altar that they found the greatest pile of bodies. And because Edward and his men in the Earl of Gloucester had broken the laws of sanctuary and, and cut them on fourteens down. Um, so it was, in part, um, a, um, a crushing defeat for the Montfortians. Uh, but from the point of view of Simon himself, I think, um, he would have liked um, us to see it in slightly more positive terms. Um, what was left of Simon after the battle, um, he was cut up in rather grisly ways that I won't go into. Um, all that was left of him after that was his torso, and that was rescued by the Abbey monks and buried in, the, um, in Evesham Abbey. And this became the site of a pilgrimage cult um, because it was believed that Simon as a martyr, as a crusader, as a saint, um, having died in the cause of justice, um, should be venerated um, as a holy man. And people came in the decades that followed from all over the country um, to worship um, at his shrine. So I think from Simon de Montfort's point of view, from the point of view of the Montfort family, he would have seen this um, as the pinnacle of his career, actually, um, rather than a crushing um, defeat. Um, he would have seen it as um, his chapter in the Montfort family story, something of which his parents and his brothers could be proud. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sophie, for that really, really interesting talk. I'm sure you've got lots of questions. If you do, please raise your hand and Ellie with the uh, History Magazine t-shirt on and fairly bright hair will come round. I can see someone just said. Thanks, that was brilliant, fascinating. Uh, I'm just wondering, the uh, de Montfort and, uh, is honoured. We have the university in Leicester and all those things. Um, how so? Because he's, he's this rebel who's against the king gets chopped to pieces. So. What sort of how should we remember him or how is he remembered? Or um... How is it that he is remembered so well because he was a rebel against the king? Yeah, I suppose um, it depends on your point of view. Um, in the period that we're talking about, there was a very strong tradition in England of fighting against the king and this being a good thing. And a lot of this came from Thomas Beckett. So Thomas Beckett, having uh, been, been martyred in Canterbury Cathedral, you know, um, fighting Angevin tyranny, um, being made into a saint in the 1170s, became essentially the patron saint of England. And his shrine at Canterbury was visited by people from all over the world. It was very popular in England. And it, it came to be in the decades that followed that anybody, whether it was a bishop standing up to the king or a nobleman like Simon, who was seen to be following this model, um, could be seen as, as sort of fulfilling um, Beckett's role 
and doing something incredibly virtuous. So as much as the um, the kings at the time, like Henry III, were trying to champion um, the, a saint in the form of um, a king, Saint Edward the Confessor, to say, everyone, kings are great. Um, the rest of the country was saying, no, people who fight kings are great, uh, in the model of Thomas Beckett. Okay, I see quite a lot of hands up. Ellie, do you want to just sort of go downwards? Thank you. Locally, we've got a castle about 20 miles up the road called Odium, and it was the property of Seaman de Montfort. It's, as, as a kid, I was always taken there for picnics, and it's a, a magical place for me. But I, although it's just a ruins now, I understand that it's supposed to be the castle with the greatest rec amount of records appertaining to daily life in there. Have you accessed those records, and are you able to tell us about some of the information that went, that went on every, every day in Odium, please? Yeah, um, so um, this is a brilliant question, actually, and one that I, I could have planted myself because it just it opens up all of these um, really important themes. Um, so Odium, I should say, uh, say also that I grew up down the road and I know the area very well and I know Odium uh, very well as well, very dear to my heart. Um, Odium Castle was granted by Henry III to Eleanor and Simon de Montfort, and it was the Montfort a couple who rebuilt Odium as we see it now, that octagonal keep. Um, and recent archaeological work has shown that it was the Montfort that did that. Um, this was their base of operations in the south. And we have a remarkable record from the early months of 1265, which is the household role of Eleanor de Montfort. Now, noble women in this period would have all had household roles recording their expenditure, um, but hardly any survive. Eleanor's does, and it shows us what she was up to at Odium um, at this vital point in the campaign. It shows us that she was one of her husband's sort of chief uh, lieutenants, that she was using it as essentially a command post. Um, she was entertaining members of the family, Montfortian supporters, people who were on the fence, she was trying to win them over by feasting and by giving them presents. And that household rule also records the point when she had to leave Odium after the escape of Edward um, in that dramatic escape from Hereford Castle. She was told by her husband to leave Odium Castle and head for the South Coast, which is exactly what she did. She made her way down the South Coast to Dover. And why was she instructed to do that? Um, it was to lead the defence of Dover Castle in the event of invasion from France, because the English Queen and the French royal family were waiting, essentially, um, to take Simon out with the army that they'd mustered. And Eleanor's household role records that entire story and really shows us the pivotal part that she played um, in those events. And um, Odium was right at the heart of it. Okay, got time for a, a two or three more, and I can see uh, this one. Uh, you mentioned the provisions of Oxford. Is there a case for saying that they're as important as Magna Carta for sort of, our democracy today? Um, I think there certainly is. And the reason really is that it was the first time that um, government had attempted to make things better for the lowest of the low in society. And that was a massive difference from Magna Carta. Um, Magna Carta, as it was created in 1215 and, and reissued, was essentially about protecting the rights of the barons, 
and the church had nothing to say about looking after um, people at the lowest point in society, freemen, peasants, um, and so on. The provisions of Oxford um, put that concern right at their heart. Um, and that was something quite new and quite different. It was inspired by the sort of the thinking of the day, um, the arguments of the church and so on. Um, of course, the provisions of Oxford also contain all the bits about taking away royal power, which were then cut out um, in the years that followed. But a lot of those reforms were taken on by King Henry and by Edward when he came to power um, because they were incredibly popular um, and actually put into legislation. Um, so from that point of view, elements of them survived. Um, and certainly, they, I think they should be remembered as, as a landmark in, in what government was trying to achieve in this period. The Montfortian regime did a lot of very dark things, not least, you know, stealing, um, seizing uh, quite a lot of land um, illegally, and also in what it did um, in terms of persecuting Jewish communities across England um, in order, essentially, to get money for the regime. Um, but the provisions of Oxford are one element that, you know, I think it would, be, would have been seen at the time as um, undisputably positive. OK, uh, question here. Um, just going back to the Barons' crusade, would it not have been a fantastic position for him to have been the regent of Jerusalem? And why do you think he obviously wasn't that interested? Yeah, um, I think it certainly would have been. And it's a little bit frustrating because we don't know exactly how this claim, how this suggestion um, fell apart, um, which it did. Um, and there's just a hint here that it was actually a Montfort idea in the first place. Um, and if I can find it, there's a name here amongst um, the, the list of barons of the Kingdom of Jerusalem who put forward this suggestion. That's Philip de Montfort, Simon's cousin. Um, and by this point, his brother was out of captivity. So there's just a suggestion that it was a Montfort family plan. And we don't know whether it fell apart because the guy who had the say-so about who should be regent, that was the Holy Roman Emperor, maybe he didn't like it um, at the time. Um, we know the similar request that came in the early 1250s from the French barons um, to be regent of their kingdom. In that case, we actually have Simon's response, which was um, it would be seen as a disloyal move to serve the kingdom of France when I was sworn to the king of England. Um, that wouldn't have, um, although it was, it was a great thing to be asked to do something that prestigious, um, it could have been seen as, as disloyal because his first priority should have been whatever King Henry III wanted him to do. So that's one possibility. Okay, I think we had one last question at the front. <laughs> Mine's a... Oh, is this working? Everyone hear me? Yeah. Good. Sorry, I can't hear that. Um, one small question. Uh, I read somewhere that prior to Evesham, Edward had already caught and taken the banners of Simon's son, another Simon, um, and he rode at least up to the battlefield under Simon Younger's banner, and that was used to trick our Simon de Montfort. Mm. Um, is there 
credence in that? Yeah, so this, this comes from um, very, very shortly before um, the Battle of Evesham. Um, Edward had led a lightning raid on Kenilworth Castle, where Simon's um, son, Simon, it's a, it's a wrongful family name, they like that, you know, everyone is a Simon or a Guy for the most part, or an Amory. Um, and they'd captured not Simon's son, but, but many of the other knights. They'd taken their horses and their armour and their battle standards. Um, so this um, is perhaps what allowed them to get so close to Evesham. Now, we know from that eyewitness account um, that when Simon was sitting in the abbey precincts um, of, um, at Evesham, um, that he was told very clearly um, when he was here um, that it was Edward and the Earl of Gloucester who had arrived. They were coming in up here. So by that point, they certainly knew who it was. Um, but you would have hoped that they would have had some kind of, um, you know, scouts out around the countryside who could tell them uh, where Edward's men were. Um, and clearly, Edward's movements weren't reported um, until he was right on top of them. So that might well be um, what allowed him to get so close to Evesham. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. That was Sophie Ambler speaking at our 2019 History Weekend events. Her book, The Song of Simon de Montfort, England's First Revolutionary, is out now published by Picador. If you enjoyed this talk, we'll be running lectures from our history events every Saturday on the podcast for the next few weeks. And be sure to go to historyextra.com forward slash events for news of our upcoming virtual lecture series. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Newitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with the latest in our Everything You Wanted to Know series. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.